This is the Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 414. Thanks to our friends at Sidekick. Their muscle scraping tools keep your muscles healthy by improving blood flow, helping you treat your running injury faster so you can get back to doing what you love. Go to SidekickTool.com and use promo code MTA to save 15% on your order. Thanks to Oladance Open Earbuds. They have 360 degree superior sound, but they never enter the ear, so there's no ear fatigue. Plus, you'll not lose track of what's happening around you when you run. Visit Oladance.com, use the promo code MTA20 for 20% off. Thanks to MetPro Nutrition Coaching. You can speak with a metabolic expert to review your current habits, discuss your lifestyle needs, and receive actionable steps towards achieving your goals, whether it's to lose weight or change your body composition. Go to metpro.co forward slash MTA to get $500 off their concierge coaching. Hey, hey, it's Trevor here. I am actually in Liège, Belgium, getting ready to run a marathon tomorrow. I'll tell you all about it on an upcoming episode. That is, if I survive it. I've been over here in Europe for a couple of weeks, just kind of cavorting around, seeing a lot of cool stuff. Been to a lot of museums and castles and historical places, which I really enjoy. Speaking of history, we have a conversation with a medieval scholar and historian today. And she's author of the book, It's a Marathon, Not a Sprint, My Road to the Marathon and the PhD. Uh, Vanessa Cochran is actually a listener to the podcast. She sent us her book. And it weaves together two stories of her life, training for her first marathon and subsequent marathons, and also this long, arduous process of earning a PhD in medieval studies. So I love education, and I'm always fascinated by those people who undertake a PhD process. Also love history. So it was fun to talk to Vanessa and ask her some questions about what it's like to get a PhD, how her marathon training helped her with that, and also some questions about the Middle Ages. Vanessa is currently an advising dean and adjunct professor of history at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where she lives with her husband and her daughter. She's run seven marathons, including the Boston Marathon, and she's done a ton of other shorter distance races. Here's our conversation with Vanessa Corcoran. Well on my way, well on my way. All right, we're on the podcast now with Dr. Vanessa Corcoran, author of the book, It's a Marathon, Not a Sprint. Vanessa, thanks for joining us on the MTA podcast. Thanks for having me. I've always enjoyed listening to this podcast. So you actually ran your first marathon and started training for your first marathon before we started the podcast, maybe even before Angie ran her first marathon. Oh yeah, she did. 2009. Yeah, 2009. All right. I guess we were about on the same trajectory because I was 2008. So Angie, when did you finish your PhD? (laughs) TBD. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we like to jump off and ask people how they got started as a runner. So kind of take us back, you know, and how you got going in this crazy world of running. Sure. So to people that knew me growing up, it's very surprising that I became a runner because I was not an athlete. I was really into music and doing the plays. Going into middle school, we were told we had to sign up to at least try a fall sport, either soccer or cross country. And I had done like third grade soccer and hated it and would like duck when the ball flew in my direction and I'll do (laughs) country. And I came home like with the letter and my parents were like not sure how to respond because I just didn't run. And, you know, my mom likes to tease me, but we would go shopping at the mall and, you know, it's you go down one way and I would ask her if she could like pick me up 
like on the other end of the mall instead of like walking all the way back. So <laughs> just that. But I actually really liked cross country because it felt such like a team sport and an individual sport. And so I thought it was really fun. And I, I always liked running into the woods uh, because I was a slow starter. I still am a slow starter. So I would a lot of times with cross country races go in pretty much at the very end of the pack. And then then it was like a game, like, okay, now I could pass people and like come out of the woods. But that was really just for middle school. And then with the timing of when cross country was and high school plays were, I had to pick and I picked the plays. Mm -hmm. Um, So then it really was just something I would maybe do sometimes. But really, you know, through college, I would get into running, you know, as new semester, new good habits, and then it would fall off. But when I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2008 to start graduate school, I really wanted a, a fresh start in so many respects. And I thought, this is the time to like try this running thing. And you know, this could be my way to learn my way around a new city. So I got into it. I, I made a friend who was also new to the area, and we would go for four or five mile runs on Saturday mornings, which felt so long um, at that point. <laughs> but He was a researcher in a wet lab, and we would just have these really great conversations. And, and, you know, when you're running, you you dream big about all sorts of things. And so he said, well, you know, we should do a marathon. (laughs) Why not? Um, We would just sort of talk about it every few weeks. And then in October, he sent me an email one morning saying, like, we've talked about this long enough. We should make the commitment. At that point, we had only run six miles, um, which... And now looking back, like that was a pretty big goal to say, okay, and in five months, we're going to do a marathon. But I responded back to him immediately and said, yeah, let's do it. And so then we just slowly started building up mileage. And it just all of a sudden came into my identity as who I was. Um, Mm -hmm. So now when people, you know, introduce me to someone, you know, oh, this is Vanessa, she's a runner. And that season was really when it all happened. And I got more comfortable finding my way around DC and really liked using it as a way to explore. And, you know, we would do our long runs together on the weekends. But during the week, that was my, you know, me time during graduate school. And, you know, I found graduate school to be incredibly challenging. And so this was just such a great way to decompress. And it was a confidence booster. And so, you know, the first marathon, which then I ran in March 2009, it was then called the National Marathon. I think now it's the Rock and Roll DC Marathon. Mm -hmm. was just, at that point, probably the greatest day of my life. It just... Mm was so excited. I had never been a part of anything like that. And like just the sense of community that I could see, you know, on marathon morning, running through, you know, all of DC, because that was the cool thing about this marathon is that it took place only in DC. And so you're just going through all these different neighborhoods, kind of like Boston in that sense. And, you know, as you go into each different neighborhood, there's different music playing and people out cheering and everything. And I was just so overwhelmed by it. And in that sense, also overwhelmed because I positive splitted by eight minutes because the first half I just was so excited and felt so (laughs) great about it, which, you know, hit a little hard on the way back, but I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over how amazing it felt. And I had never set out to do something that big before. And just surprised myself. And even though like all the training had pointed that like, you know, I think I'll be able to finish and and everything, like just having been able to do it was just, you know, life changing. And 
I have this new identity. I have this new life now in DC. I have new friends. I have this hobby that I really like. Like this is the new me now. Mm. And that was 14 years ago. There's been no turning back. <laughs> awesome. How many marathons are you up to now? I think just seven. And and over, I think, 100 races altogether. I think um, you're both Almost. Fed. I'm actually at 99. I've been oh stuck goodness. on 99 and I need to like pick something. You just need to do a 5K for fun. <laughs> I know. I have a chart and I had it in my head that it, it was at 100 and I updated it a couple of weeks ago and I realized it's at 99. And so I need to find something special for 100. But I think that also just shows too, you know, you meet and I know you've interviewed all different kinds of runners, you know, people that are marathon maniacs and do all the back-to-back marathons. There are people that race all the time. You know, there was a season in my life where you know, looking at the chart, I would do 10 to 12 races a year. And particularly now that I have a child, it's fewer, but there are still just as many miles each year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Because I think it's, re- I still really enjoy racing, but you know, doing the running for running sake is also really enjoyable too. Yeah. And I like how you put that. There are different seasons of life as a runner and it doesn't change your identity as a runner. You know, sometimes you're prolific, you do tons of races, you know, you're going for PRs. Sometimes it's just all about the stress relief and getting the miles in. And it's not so much about getting a medal. Mm-hmm. And it's all equally valid. I think that is the amazing thing. There's really no wrong way to be a runner. <laughs> yep. And I think about, you know, now I've gotten married and I've had a kid. I think those surpass the marathon in terms of yes. being like greatest days. But I would still place that first one in, in top 10. Um, but I also think of great runs that I've done with friends. I have a, a colleague that I work with here at Georgetown and we run together once or twice a week. And, you know, we have really important conversations on those runs too. And those are really happy moments as well. Yeah. So, you know, the marathon's a good metaphor for life and for a lot of things. You even hear people talk about marathon binge watching <laughs> on Netflix. Your book's interesting because you parallel your PhD journey with marathon. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, that's something we haven't talked about on the podcast before is how those two things relate. What got you interested in pursuing a PhD and what did you get your PhD in? So I have a PhD in medieval history. So the Middle Ages is roughly about the year 500 to 1500. So it's about a thousand years, always misknown as the Dark Ages. But I spend a lot of my time showing why there's actually a lot of really interesting, important, positive things that happened during that period too. Mm. But I, while I was not a lifelong runner, I was a lifelong reader and learner and just always wanted to learn more. And I loved studying history in middle school, high school, field trips were always really exciting. When I got to college, I knew I was going to major in history I actually thought I was going to study modern American history because that was, you know, the biggest thing I was exposed to. And I was going to go to law school because that was the practical thing to do with a history degree. (laughs) Um, How many many times did people ask you, what are you going to do with your history degree? Oh, (laughs) many, many. As many as they ask, when are you going to finish that PhD? So, um, Such a blessing. Yes. But I got to college and you have all these, you know, requirements within the major and I had had, you know, AP credit that I didn't need to take survey classes in American history. So I was taking my pre-modern European requirements and I had these really interesting professors talking about the role of art and architecture. And interestingly, I had a first year seminar that was all about the idea of suffering 
and it was actually about suffering during the bubonic plague. Wow. And this was 15 years ago. This was not, you know, a pandemic class. This was learning about a pandemic before it was hip. Mm-hmm. When did that plague, when did that take place? Uh, 1347. Mm-hmm. And there were a few different major plagues of the Middle Ages. There was also one during the reign of Emperor Justinian. So it's sometimes known as Justinian's plague um, oh, no. in the 6th century. <laughs> I'm sure he was, he'd be thrilled to know that that was aimed after him. <laughs> but, you know, to give this plague example... It was really interesting because the idea was framed around the question, confronted with suffering and loss, how then shall we live? Mm -hmm. And we spent a whole year understanding the social, cultural, economic, religious, political implications of this plague. And it was something I had never heard of when I you know, got to college. And I often wanted to just learn more about this world and the ways in which the world shifted because of this. I didn't know that 20 years later, we'd be watching the world shift in real time. Mm. But it was just this really interesting period. And the more I learned about the Middle Ages, the more I wanted to keep learning because it was just so utterly foreign to me. And then that's something that I've also just really enjoyed about teaching it now, too, is Mm. because people come in with very limited understanding of it or stereotypes about it. So I found this all fascinating. I had fantastic professors. And that first semester, you know, there was one day before class, we all got there a little early, and he was talking about an academic conference he was going to go to. And the more he talked, I I just didn't know that you could be a professor like that. And you could just, you know, spend your life reading and researching. And I have a journal from college and I went home that day and I like wrote in my journal, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to get my PhD in history and I want to teach it at a place like my college. And then there was no looking back. Were you a freshman when you wrote that? Yeah. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's a big commitment. I mean, <laughs> little did you know how long and hard the journey would be, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was completely wide-eyed then when I got to grad school and, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't ready for all of just all of the different challenges associated with, you know, learning Latin with learning multiple languages. How many how many years of Latin were required? So I took three years of Latin in, in graduate school, but I also took French. I'd taken French since middle school. And then because a lot of popular medieval scholarship is done in German, I also took German as well in graduate school. All required for the PhD track? Yes. In, wow. in medieval history. Light work. Yeah. <laughs> it's like cross-training, right? It's all these supplemental things yeah, right. that you should be doing. That you're not necessarily that passionate about. But. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, come on, German? You're not passionate about German? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that was the thing. It was it was Latin was really hard, and I knew I needed it for graduate school, but that was just a, a hard sticking point. Yeah. So what, what level of proficiency do they expect you to get to with, like, French and German where you can read and translate? Exactly. So French, I took a test to test out of taking it in graduate school. In in my German class in graduate school, it was kind of funny how the final exam worked um, because we had to read things in translation. So we were given a journal article. It was a book review of a theological book that the late Pope Benedict had written. And so we were like given a copy and we had to like sit down and start translating. And we had this like big square table and the professor would walk around and like check your work. And then she would say like, keep going. Or you can go like if she thought, cause it was a pass or no pass oh, mm-hmm. exam. And so 
you know, when you were told like, does he scoot? Okay, great. Shoes. I'm out of here. Yeah. So that was. That's cool. Yeah. A lot of it's fallen out of my head, unfortunately, at this point. As, as it does, you just have to yeah. make room for new information. But yeah. so you have this passion for medieval history. You've got this vision of pursuing your PhD and it's a long, hard road. And I know imposter syndrome is something that's so common But the irony is that we often think we're the only ones struggling with it. And I thought you really talked about it well in the book. So how did imposter syndrome show up for you? And what were things that helped you accept your worth and belonging? Mm -hmm. When I got to graduate school, I was the youngest in the program. And there were a couple of new students, but they were new PhD students. So they had done master's elsewhere. I was working on my master's and everyone else was either like a second year master's student or, you know, had just been there before. And I just really like from the beginning felt out of my depth. It wasn't that I didn't feel welcomed by my classmates. They were fantastic and everything, but I just felt, you know, okay, they've done more years of schooling already. Their languages were already, you know, in a better place than than mine was. And my professors just, it seemed like there was an ease in which they would talk back and forth. And, you know, I'd plan out like a couple of little ideas that I could say and they always just felt like lukewarm responses. And I was very grateful that my classmates made it clear from the beginning, like, you're going to figure this out. We all did too. But with my professors, you know, I really just tried to keep that under wraps and really just tried to like present a facade that I was able to do this, that I wasn't nervous about this. No one knew about my sweaty hands or, you know, (laughs) all the deep breaths I had to take or, you know, handshaking, doing a presentation, anything like that. And, you know, there's so many steps, you know, to like, quote, let you go to the next phase of graduate school. So each time I made it to a new phase, it both helped and then up the stakes too. So it was both, I finished my master's. Okay, you are competent, you know, you're a master now Mm -hmm. of this field. And now you can start the PhD program. So we believe you can do it. Now the stakes are higher because now you're setting out to do this five to seven plus year program. Now the stakes are a lot higher and it feels a lot harder if you couldn't finish. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't. Yeah. So I think the statistic is only 57% of people complete a PhD within 10 years. Hmm. And I knew that from the beginning. And I was seeing it too. I was seeing people not finish for a variety of reasons. And I had that 18 year old self journal that said, this is what I want to do. And this is all I've ever wanted to do. And I didn't know what a world would look like if I didn't do it. Um, Did you stick with it because of you wanted to be true to yourself back then? Or was it continuing to feed you and like light your passion for learning this topic? It was it was both. I mean, I, you know, my passion has only ever increased from studying it. And and now, you know, as a professor, there are still new things I'm enjoying discovering. But in some ways, it kind of felt I described it in the book as like going up a roller coaster, like, okay, we're going, I've got to, you can't get off the roller coaster at this point. Hmm. But I had hit every benchmark. That was the thing was I was, I'd never missed a benchmark. And then when things got to the writing the dissertation part, everything was so open-ended at that point. Everything else was so concrete that I remember when you begin your PhD program, like they give you this like handbook you know, of all the rules and, you know, this is when you need to get your tests done by and your coursework and the dissertation. And I had gotten to step 18 of 20 
the 18 is write the dissertation, 19 is defend it, and 20 is like print it. <laughs> like it's so, hard things, really hard things. <laughs> you know, like it was misleading, like, oh, I'm already at step 18. But I mean, in that sense, it's like mile 20 of the marathon. It's yeah. not, you know, that's the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when things were really hard because it was just so open-ended. and It was hard were- to refine your topic, you're saying? Yeah. And there's just so much more independence and, you know, you really have to be a self-starter. And so to that, and, you know, my professors would say, well, Vanessa, you're so disciplined, you know, you're a marathoner. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Ha ha ha. I'm like, yeah, but I always felt more confident in that ability. At least with a marathon, there's a course to stay on, right? It's not like you're running through an open field. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, in that sense, and you know exactly when the mile markers are coming up and this, it could take a year, it could take 10 years or, you know, or you could DNF. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really hard. And a lot of anxiety that had been, I think, masking as imposter syndrome was starting to creep out more. And I had a lot more time to myself with writing, which my professors would say was a good thing because this is, you know, all you need to do is just write now. And I always did better when I had teaching obligations or all these things that I could sort of like bounce my time back and forth. But having open-ended days of like, quote, just write mm-hmm. was terrible. <laughs> um, and I had hit a, a point where, you know, I got some hard feedback from my advisor that in some ways... I had viewed it to be like, maybe this means I can't finish. And Mm. that wasn't what the professor said, but it was just like, I think this chapter has arrived too early. Mm. Not ready yet. But it was something I had spent months working on. And And that was chapter two. It was chapter two. Chapter one, you know, took a long time to write, but chapter one went well. Chapter two. (sighs) Of how many chapters? Um, I can't remember if it was four or five. And that's the funny thing, right? It was this big thing. And now I can't even remember how many chapters were. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in it. It's um, like hard, it's like trying to remember an individual mile on a marathon. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Kind of all is a blur after you've you done it. I remember like some of the pain and like the discomfort and the thoughts and the, you were thinking, but then the it's joy. like, oh yeah, yeah. I finished. So it's yeah. all good, right? <laughs> yeah. But it was this, it was this critical point and it just, everything that had been sort of looming underneath the surface broke out. Hmm. And, you know, thanks to my husband's encouragement, you know, I got a counseling appointment and started some anxiety medication, which helped with sleeping. And it, but it really was this moment that I, I don't want to say like you need to have a tipping point like that, but it had been looming so much under the surface for years. And then in retrospect, in, in counseling sessions, the signs were there all along. But, you know, being able to talk about this and then also getting, you know, medical support to sleep better made Mm -hmm. such a huge difference. And then it opened things up to getting more kinds of help. I worked with my university's writing center and that helped me reframe things. And and then things, not overnight, but began to change. And then that was October 2015 and I defended April 2017. So just a year and a half after that. And, you know, the final year of grad school was the happiest of my grad school experience because it finally felt like everything was together, coming together. It was like that 
monster month of marathon training where you can't believe like you're doing all these big workouts, but it's kind of like a delirious exhaustion, you know, because then you get to eat all the great food and, and everything. And it finally felt like everything was coming together. And I knew at that point that all my professors were on board. And like, at this point, there really was a finish line and setting up mm you know, a defense state and, you know, knowing that graduation was on the horizon. So to that end, when it was time to defend the dissertation, you know, everything was already written out, but then you do a, a two-hour oral defense. You know, actually, it's in some ways, like the first marathon, that was an incredibly happy day. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very nervous that morning, but once it was like curtain up, and as soon as we started talking, you know, this was my chance to show the culmination of everything I had worked on, just like on marathon day, all of those days of practice, all those cumulative miles, cumulative reading and research had come into place. And so then, you know, like the marathon it was really a celebration moment. That is amazing. It's awesome. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Thanks to our friends at Sidekick Tool for sponsoring this episode. So as a runner, you like to run. You hate to be laid up with an injury. So it pays to have kind of like an arsenal at home of tools that you can use to stay on top of your injury prevention. And we've actually been fans of Sidekick and have been using their stuff uh, years before they became a sponsor. So we're super excited now to partner with them. That's right. If you're suffering from plantar fasciitis, shin splints, IT band tightness, even knee pain, muscle scraping therapy works by breaking up block vessels to heal stress tissue in your body. It's a safe, effective injury prevention and injury relief tool that's more precise than a foam roller or a massage gun. With Sidekick, you can get the benefits of massage, but at home and in minutes. So take control of your injury recovery and go to SidekickTool.com to get 15% off your order using code MTA. That's SidekickTool.com and save 15% by using the code MTA. Thanks to our friends at MetPro. You can speak with a metabolic expert. Free call, no hassle. Just jump on, see if it's a good fit for you. We know that lots of folks that listen to the podcast have partnered up with a MetPro coach and have seen amazing results. If you feel like you're stuck right now with where things are as far as your nutrition, reach out. They are metabolic geniuses. The great thing about having a MetPro coach is that they meet you wherever you are in your lifestyle, with your time constraints, and they really set up a very actionable program for you to follow. They have a very handy app where you can track your workouts, you can track your nutrition, and the coaches will even, if you're going to be going out to eat, if you let them know in advance, they'll look at the menu and recommend things depending on what phase in your nutrition plan that you're on. So they really make it as easy as possible to reach your goals with your nutrition And of course, when you dial your nutrition in, that can help take your running and your fitness to the next level. Just go over to metpro.co forward slash MTA. Talk to one of their coaches. If you decide to work with them, you can get 500 bucks off if you tell them that we sent you. metpro.co forward slash MTA. And what was your dissertation on? So my dissertation was called The Voice of Mary. I went to Catholic University for graduate school. I grew up Catholic. And I was very interested in Jesus's mother, the Virgin Mary, most famous woman in history, most painted woman in history. Mm. And, you know, after Jesus, the most written about, you know, person in medieval religious history. I was really interested in medieval devotional culture. So not really theology, which is really all about like the rules, but more about like lived experiences. Mm-hmm. I was doing all of this reading about what people thought Mary would have said in different, you know, expanded situations, almost like medieval fan fiction. (laughs) Um, And 
Yeah, because there's not a whole lot in the Bible about Mary or, you know, quotes from her. There's like, what is it, Luke chapter one, the Magnificent? Yep. Mary speaks in the Bible four times. Three times in Luke, as, as you pointed out, the Annunciation at the Magnificat, at the, which is sometimes known as the Visitation when she sees her cousin Elizabeth, when she yells at Jesus for getting lost in the temple, um, <laughs> which now as a parent, I totally get. Yes. Um, and, um, and then in John at the wedding of Cana, yeah. she's actually the one credited to encouraging Jesus to begin his public ministry by yeah. saying, they have no wine. Mm-hmm. And he says, woman, it's not my time yet. And she tells a waiter, do whatever he tells you. And then and then everything begins. But typically when people think of Mary, and I've got like 10 Mary images, you know, all around in my office right now, they're always very demure, mm-hmm. or, you know, either at the nativity, you know, leaning over the baby Jesus or quietly reading a book. It's like a glow to her face, you know. Exactly. Like ethereal, quiet, obedient to the will of God. And when I was reading these medieval miracle collections, so people in the Middle Ages believed that you could appeal to Christ, to Mary, to different saints for all kinds of intercession, for healing. You know, so people with leprosy would go to a particular shrine and ask for intervention. People with seizures, people with eczema, people who were poor, who were asking, you know, for money to be able to pay rent, you know, all of these different stories. And these were written down in these miracle collections. Hmm. What I was really struck with was that Mary appeared to be really speaking in a way that was different to those sources in the Bible. And in times she was appearing in a thunderstorm and saving people from, you know, a, a turbulent storm. She was invoked in battle, um, you know, during the Crusades and, and interceding hmm. on people's behalf. So more fierce figure then. Absolutely. There's one, and this was really like the the life-changing source that I read was there was this knight who was making fun of pilgrims as they were like going up to the shrine. And in the middle of the night, she appears to him and puts a rope around his neck and drags him down to hell and basically scares (laughs) him straight and says, this is the horrible things that await you if you don't (laughs) change your ways where is this coming from? Um, and, then, um, and he does. But we have images of Mary wrestling with the devil, hmm. um, of punching and, and verbally part. And so where is all of this coming from? So I was interested in the idea of Mary's voice. And what did it mean to have this woman seemingly demure, but also very powerful, written about in such a powerful way, but in a society that is so incredibly focused on limiting women's speech? So how can these two things, you know, exist at the same time? And in what ways was Mary meant to be imitated or admired and sort of examining the tension between them? So it was a, wow. it was a really fun project. Now, you, you mentioned pilgrimage. And one of the questions I had is that I know many religious traditions include some type of pilgrimage over the ages. So I was wondering if you saw any parallels between pilgrimage and the process of training for a marathon or even long distance running kind of as a way that runners can express that spiritual desire of our nature to transcend and to be you know, part of something bigger than ourselves. So I actually just finished teaching a course on pilgrimage this semester. Oh, cool. Um, wow. Which was a new one that I, I designed for my students at Georgetown. And it was such an enjoyable one. And it really explored this idea of 
what does a pilgrimage mean in all contexts, religious and secular, mm-hmm. medieval and modern. Um, and so each week we were studying a different place. We talked about Jerusalem, Mecca, Rome, you know, in, in the three major monotheistic religious traditions, mainly in the Middle Ages, because that is my area. Um, but then we actually spent the final weeks of the semester talking about pilgrimage in a modern secular context. Mm-hmm. And I actually had them read an article about people making pilgrimage to Pree's Rock in wow, Eugene. Yes. Um, well, I better fill in some details for anyone who hasn't heard. So Steve Prefontaine was a just college phenom runner and competed in the, the Olympic Games in Helsinki, yeah. right? But he died in a car accident mm-hmm. in, in Oregon. So there's a, a rock there, like sort of a, a monument to him, Pree's Rock. Right. And people leave all of these objects. And objects are very important in religious pilgrimage. People would bring home badges or relics or, you know, a scraping of stone. And I think there's a lot to be said about how running can be a form of pilgrimage, but also, you know, going to major running sites as a form of pilgrimage. You know, the main thought that we talked about throughout the semester was how someone embarks on a pilgrimage with the desire to be transformed. Hmm. There's actually some really interesting scholarship also on, you know, Boston as a pilgrimage and, you know, people refer to Boston as a running Mecca, right? You know, Um, and so what does it mean, you know, to embark on that journey? And pilgrimage also usually means visiting several spots, too. And you can easily imagine that with Boston and, you know, people visit, you know, the site where the bombing took place and take time to honor the victims there. You know, that can be part of the pilgrimage, visiting the different statues along the way. Some people make the choice to visit the finish line before the race. I was always superstitious. I never, I was like, I'll see it, you know, on on Marathon Monday when I get there. Um, There's even a church like right there in Boylston that mm -hmm. does the blessing of the athletes Mm -hmm. on Sunday. Right. Absolutely. And it's, it's very ritualistic. And I, I, so I absolutely see a lot of connections between the two. And I think, you know, runners, you know, particularly marathoners go on this journey, go on this pilgrimage with the desire to change. So many people take up running as a result of something or a d- desire for something new. And that's, you know, that was my story as well. I was moving somewhere new and I wanted a new life and wanted to create a new identity. And now it's it's just in, ingrained, certainly. So did, did people run in the Middle Ages for exercise, that is, or are they just too busy trying to survive? You know, <laughs> yeah. To not get killed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see, I don't know a lot about the history of athletics in that sense, but I think that's more of like a 18th, 19th mm-hmm. century practice. Um, and certainly there were sports played in the Middle Ages, but... Just like jousting and like blood sports. Yeah. There, yeah so there's like the chivalric uh, sports, you know, jousting, horseback riding, and, and all kinds of walking beyond pilgrimage too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are all these really interesting pilgrimage routes throughout Europe. Um, yeah, like El Camino de Santiago. Yep, in Spain. I actually had one of my students in my pilgrimage class this semester um, did part of the Camino when she studied abroad in Spain last semester, wow. and she brought her pilgrimage passport, um, mm-hmm. which gets stamped and signed on. And which, again, so that's that very much reminded me of like a marathon medal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've often been fascinated with just these long treks that people would do, historical figures and so forth, in the Middle Ages. I know, like Martin Luther, and he's like toward the end of the 
Middle Ages, but before the Protestant Reformation, he, he was sent to Rome. Mm-hmm. And so he goes from Wittenberg, Germany, I guess, uh, all the way to Rome. And I've read several books about the guy, and no one really talks about what the walk was like. How do you do that back in the day? And how do you go over the Alps in the winter on foot? And was right. this like an endurance hike for him? So, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, an important part of pilgrimage is considered suffering, right? Yeah, from, particularly from a Christian standpoint, right? Because you're trying to be like Christ. Christ suffered on the cross. So we too should envision some form of suffering. So to that end, there are actually some rules like with the Camino in Spain of how you do it. Like to get your official like pilgrimage credentials, you're not allowed to bike the Camino. I don't know if you could run the Camino. I mean, I think people, you know, could, but I don't know if you would actually get certified for it. Mm. You can walk. Um, I think you can actually do horseback, but you're not allowed to, to cycle it or drive it because it's supposed to be intentionally difficult, you know, and, and people would, you know, particularly in the Middle Ages, they would wear hair shirts and all of these things to actually like increase the level of suffering. But in terms of Martin Luther, and then he got to Rome and he hated it. He hated it. I mean, it was everything he feared. It was everything he spoke out against because all he saw was opulence. He saw excess and he saw people that were distracted, which was why then he spoke out against, um, you know, the sale of indulgences and, you know, the cult of the saints, you know, he said Christ gets lost in the pantheon of saints. And so he just saw this veritable circus and wanted to have people live more simply as a result. It's kind of ironic, though, because we would consider just daily life in the Middle Ages to be suffering, probably, (laughs) you know, if we were transported back (laughs) there, just their daily life. And so for them to even go beyond, you know, to to walk barefoot or to wear a hair shirt or mm-hmm. to flagellate themselves or whatever, you know, it's just like walk a thousand miles right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. outside. Yeah, yeah. So what was life just to see how comfortable we live now? Yeah. Like, what was life like then just to survive and get by compared to now? What are a couple of things that stick out? Right. Well, I mean, I even just think about life before air conditioning, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, when they talk about the the lower life expectancy in the Middle Ages, a lot of it's not doesn't have anything to do with like plague or disease like that. A lot of it has to do with accidents, too. Mm. I mean, this is like a, a very sad subject, but a lot of children died before age five, not because of illness, but because parents had didn't have child care. And they had to work in the fields and, you know, all of these different accidents would happen. So the kids would just be left on their own yeah. at home or something. Yeah. And then probably the rates of like maternal death, you know, in childbirth were extremely high exactly. as well. Exactly. You know, and and there are women, you know, who had 10 kids, you know, with only a few survivors. And mm. um, when we talk about the 1%, I mean, life was good for the 1% in castles with feasts and, and, and all of that. But, you know, to that end, it's not as if people of, of lower classes also, you know, celebrated holidays too, Christmas and, and everything, you know, and, and we have, you know, all these great records of different kinds of Christmas celebrations that took place, a lot of which really more emerged, you know, 16th century and on, but they celebrated too. They played dice and played games with their families as well. But I, I wouldn't go back if, if, if you know, if I, <laughs> if I could go back for, you know, a couple of days and, and see what life was like, that would certainly be fascinating. But Speaking of going back, next week I'll be in Aachen in Germany where Charlemagne built his cathedral in the 800s. I've been wanting to see that. And then probably the the ancient city of Trier in Germany. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure all those places came up in your studies. Absolutely. And Aachen is so fascinating because a lot of what Charlemagne built was buried and has since been discovered, you know, in, in the modern period. And I remember in graduate school learning about Charlemagne's court in Aachen and actually thinking that in some ways, because then he brought all of these different historians and scholars and explorers all together. And he really was like, you know, some of the early running coaches, you know, Joe V. Hill, um, Bob Larson, Meb's coach, um, mm-hmm. and bringing together all these great people, you know, for this rich intellectual environment. So have a great time at Aachen. Uh, <laughs> Will do. Well, it's been great talking to you, Vanessa. And if people want to find out more about you and about your book, where can we send them? So uh, the book, It's a Marathon, Not a Sprint, My Road to the Marathon and PhD is available on Amazon. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at VRC in DC. And I seriously think that your next book needs to be like running as pilgrimage. Like that, I would love to read that book. I really want to try and pitch an article or, you know, interview some people because I think there's a lot, yeah. there would be a lot of interest in people doing it. And I mean, sure, there are members of religious communities that also run and they mm-hmm. would have their own takes on this too. Yes. Um, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, just the endurance mindset needed mm-hmm. back then to do a pilgrimage and how we can learn from that today. We don't even have to sleep outside if we don't want or <laughs> wear a hair cloth shirt. We can wear hokas, you know, instead yeah. of like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about those those recovery boots, those yes, you know, inflatable or ones. That are, they are. Yeah. I, they inflate I, with I, air or something. Yeah, I think if you showed someone from the Middle Ages that they'd just pitch. Like, what kind of witchcraft is this? That's <laughs> 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 uh, hilarious. <laughs> well, it's been so fun talking to you, Vanessa. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show, and I know people are going to really enjoy this episode and your book. Great, thank you so much. This was a blast. Hey, life is a marathon, not a sprint. Apply that philosophy to whatever huge undertaking life is offering you, whether it's raising kids, starting a business, finishing college, paying off debt, whatever it is. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Big thanks to Vanessa for joining us on the podcast. And before I let you go, hey, we can't help you earn your PhD, but we can help you get through your marathon strong and injury-free. Reach out if you want more help. We know what it takes to go the distance. You can find us at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Check out our back podcast episodes, training plans, coaching, and more. We'd love to help you get to the next level. We're so glad to be on this journey with you. Until next time, remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.